Well, I might invite everyone to uh, start finding your way back to your seats. And we'll invite everybody to continue those conversations after the service uh, as we uh, take that time to share fellowship with one another. (laughs) Before we get into God's word this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the whole of your Bible is given to us, that every part of the Bible is useful to us for training, for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. And Lord, we pray that as we share together in the full counsel of God in all of the things that you have revealed to us, that you, by your spirit, might plant your word deep in our hearts, that we would go forth from this place living your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, first... The reading this morning that we're going to start with comes from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're starting a new series this morning in the lead up to Easter. I want to have a look at a book that more than any other really, explains to us what Easter is all about. And that book, of course, is Leviticus. You're welcome. Now, I had a question about Leviticus at the Life series last year. And um, yeah, we sort of had some various nights throughout the Life series. We had, we had several tables set out. And occasionally on a few of those nights, we ended up with Uh, you know, a a few guests visiting and learning the gospel on a few of the tables. And we had one table that was, you know, just church members who were just helping out. And so we just had a bit of a yarn on some of those tables on some nights. And one night I had a couple of people on on a table like that ask me a question about what on earth is a Christian supposed to do with Leviticus? I mean, we we kind of know that... We're not under the law. That we know that all of the stuff about 
not eating, not eating bacon and not eating ants and not having uh, clothes made out of two kinds of fabrics, that stuff isn't important for us anymore. Um, even if we've never dug into all that the Bible teaches about why that's not part of the new covenant, we just know that at churches we, we eat bacon and we do all of these things and we don't do everything that Leviticus says. And it can be hard for us as Christians to know what Leviticus actually says to us. And I think I've told you this story before, but as a very young man, uh, when, I, when I first got my first full Bible, I thought I was going to read a chapter a day starting at the start and getting to the end. And Genesis and Exodus, they went through fairly easily enough. And I hit Leviticus and, and that was the end of my Bible reading plan <laughs> for a little while. But I wasn't kidding at the start when I said there is a very real sense in which Leviticus teaches us what Easter is all about. And almost more than any other book, Leviticus teaches us what it actually is that Jesus has done for us at the cross. Now today is going to be a bit of a different sort of sermon um, in that if I did, I'm doing a bit of an overview of the book as a whole because if I, if I started off with the overview and then looked at the first passage, well, I'd be quite late for the T20 game. Um, but also, it would be quite, quite a mammoth session and, you know, when you have a long time like that, then nobody remembers half of what you've said. So I thought this morning we would just look at the book the broad picture of what it is Leviticus is actually doing so that as we go through the book over the next few weeks that you might be able to see these pieces coming together and to see what Leviticus uh, is teaching to us. But I want to ask a question, and, and this isn't a rhetorical one, but when you think of Leviticus, what do you think of? Law. That's certainly a huge part of it. It is part of the law of Moses and it's part of the reason that, um, you know, the, the catchphrase that people would use when they were referring to the Old Testament in Jesus' time was they referred to it as the law and the prophets. But I think what we'll discover over these next few weeks is that Leviticus has heaps of laws in it, but it's not in and of itself about law. Instead, it has something more to teach us. Now, I think the purpose, to understand the purpose of Leviticus, it really helps us to have a look at the context that we find it in. And, and this is a great example of looking at where the context of a book or where a passage falls helps us to understand what is being accomplished. Now, we know Leviticus comes after Exodus. So we have you know, Moses comes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and, and the ten, uh, ten plagues of Egypt, and Pharaoh finally relents, and they let the people go, and then they, you know, changes his mind, and so God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross, and Pharaoh and his armies are destroyed, and they go out into the wilderness, and, you know, there's a real great high point for God, having rescued his people, and then very shortly after, it goes badly wrong when they, they make an idol and a, a, a golden calf 
And they worship it and they say, this is the God that has brought us out of Egypt. And God is understandably not very happy about that turn of events. Uh, and there's this whole, uh, whole few chapters, a whole set of chapters where Moses is sort of pleading with God not to completely destroy his people for their sin. And God says, all right, well, I won't, I won't get, you know, destroy them all, but I'll let you go on from here, but I won't be going with you. And Moses pleads with him, like, if you're not coming with us, we're not going. And God says, all right, I, I will forgive. You know, there were consequences for their sins. So I will forgive the sins of the people. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And the conclusion to the book of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a large and quite ornate tent that was to be at the centre of the camp of the Israelites and sort of there's, there's an outer courtyard to it. And then there was a tent that was the holy place. And then within that, there was a smaller part, the holy of holies. And in this place, God's presence came to dwell among his people in a special way. Now, when we say that God dwelt in the, tab the tabernacle, of course, God was still sovereign over the whole world. God was still you know, over all the world. He was still in heaven. He was still through all of his creation. But in a very real and very special and unique way, God dwelt among his people. And as we hit the end of the book of Exodus, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God is dwelling among his people in a special and unique and powerful way. And yet, his holiness is such that no one, not even Moses, can go into the tent. And we're reminded of that fact as we start the book of Leviticus. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Here Moses is, still outside the tent. And if we jump ahead to the very end of Leviticus, and then slightly past it, into the very first verse of the next book of the Bible, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the desert of Sinai. I can't take the credit for figuring that out. That one uh, was something I came across through a, a video by the, the Gospel Project, who do great videos about uh, the structure of the books of the Bible. But in those few verses, we see a hint at what Leviticus is really about, what the real problem of Leviticus is. It's about relationship with God. It's about the worship of God. And it's about the problem that they have in that God is holy and cannot abide having sin in his presence. 
and his people are sinful and so cannot be in the presence of God. And the question or the problem of Leviticus is how can a holy God live among a people that are sinful? And the the answer is that they must be made holy. And that's the thrust of the book of Leviticus. Uh, In order to have a relationship with God, in order to be able to come into the tent, so to speak, God's people must be holy. And for that to happen, it requires for their sins to be accounted for. And it requires them being set apart to live lives that glorify God. So as a Christian, as we come to Leviticus and we wonder what it has to teach us, since so many of these laws aren't things that we follow uh, to the letter in this day and age, Leviticus reminds us of the holiness of God, that our God is perfectly holy, perfectly good, and utterly unlike us who are sinful and who have fallen short of his glory. And it reminds us that in and of ourselves, we wouldn't be able to have a relationship with God. We wouldn't be able uh, to come into his presence without what God has done for us. The holiness of God is something as Christians that we can take for granted. Now in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, which I didn't have lined up on the screen, it tells us that we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We can have confidence to enter the holy place of God. And that's what the, the gift that God has given us as Christians who have had a way opened into that through the cross, through Jesus. And Leviticus stops us from taking that for granted. It helps us to see the enormity of what God has done for us at the cross. And speaking of the cross, another thing that each, if you are reading Leviticus at home, if you are doing Leviticus at your Bible study group, uh, or, you know, if as we're doing it now, if we're looking at the book of Leviticus in church, one thing that really helps us to understand what Leviticus is trying to teach us is to see what the heart of the whole book is, what is like the key passage, the key thing that God wanted to get across. 
And in Hebrew writing, very often the most important bit of what they want to say is in the middle. Now, there's a whole, you know, it's called chiastic structure. There's, there's a whole, you know, fancy thing about, you know, you've got, you've got to have different things on either side that kind of parallel each other. But the idea is that through the way that Leviticus is written, it draws the attention to this key section in the middle. And that section is Leviticus chapter 16, which is all about, well, it's it's all about Jesus in a very real sense. But it's all about the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement... Uh, atonement is a word we use a bit in churches. It's not a word that anybody ever uses outside of churches. Atonement is about reconciliation of a relationship. But there's, there's a bit more to it in that than that. The atonement has a particular sense in where there's reconciliation after one party has wronged the other party. And where... So so there's also a sense in which atonement is about turning aside the anger, the wrath that that the one party rightfully has against the other, that our relationship can be restored, that there can be reconciliation. And so through the way Leviticus is structured, the heart of the book, the emphasis is placed on this day of atonement, and we'll do a sermon like just itself on chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement. There's so much in that chapter that speaks to Christians about what Christ has done for us on the cross. Because at the Day of Atonement, through the Day of Atonement, God was teaching Israel what Jesus' death would mean thousands of years before you know, it happened. So that when Jesus came and he died on that cross, they would be able to understand what it was that he had done for them. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would make a sacrifice for himself, for his sins, because the high priest was a sinner and his sins needed to be dealt with. But then once he had done that, there would be... uh, a a ritual performed on behalf of the whole people of Israel and their sins would be confessed and they would place their hands, there were two goats and they would place their hands on one of the goats and their sins would be confessed over it and that goat would be sacrificed as a reminder of the price of sin that the wages of sin is death and that a death must be paid uh, in order for there to be uh, justice and forgiveness. But then the other goat, the scapegoat, uh, it's not just you know, the, 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 um, the new apprentice at work who gets in trouble for everything. The scapegoat comes from Leviticus and the scapegoat, they put their hands on it and confess the sins of the nation of it. And then it would be driven from the camp, driven from the land of Israel, driven out into the wilderness, expressing that your sins have been taken 
far away from you. And as we read Leviticus, we realize it's not just about law, but it's about pointing us to Christ and about what he's done for us. And so my final point this morning is about Jesus and the book of Leviticus. Did you know Jesus quoted Leviticus in his teaching? We sang about it this morning. The second most important commandment. Love your neighbour as yourself. That comes from Leviticus. Now we know that the law of Moses, strictly speaking, doesn't apply to us. And I won't do the full breakdown, but there was a point, Acts chapter 15 is the key passage, where the church was talking about all these Gentiles that are becoming Christians. Do we have to make them Jews as well? Like Make them follow all of the law? And the Spirit revealed to them, no. We were, they're not under the law of Moses. And we don't need to make them follow the law. But, so, but there's also a sense in which the law does apply to us. Because when Jesus says, love your neighbour as yourself, he doesn't say that's only for the people under the law of Moses. That's a key part of what it means to be a Christian. But we know, like I said at the start, we, we don't have to worry about the food laws or having multiple crops in the same field or even, you know, our, our church is not all got, you know, tiled surfaces and drains because we have to sacrifice animals. It's not... We're in a very different world to the world of Leviticus. How should we understand the laws of Leviticus as they touch upon our lives? What is our relationship with law? Because the reality is it's not as simple as either we chuck it all out, none of it applies, or that we keep all of it, that we have to do everything. Instead, we follow what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, the, the Old Testament, the covenant that he'd made. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. The law is not abolished, but the law is fulfilled in Christ. We have a different relationship with the law than the people of the Old Testament, than, than the Jewish people who followed the law of Moses. What does it mean for the law to be, not, to be fulfilled but not abolished? It means Leviticus is still part of our Bibles. It means we don't chuck out the Old Testament as having nothing to teach us. It means that we can learn as Christians from God's word in Leviticus. But it also means we're not beholden to every law. It means that as we come to this book, as we'll be practising throughout the next few weeks, it's about learning to see the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. 
And that's why I started our passage, this, uh, our sermon time this morning from Romans chapter 8 about the law of the Spirit who gives life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The law was powerless because it was weakened by the flesh. But God, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, has condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we come to the law, we, as Christians, learn to see the Spirit of the law. Now, sometimes that's easy. Like, love your neighbour as yourself. The Spirit of the law is exactly the same as the letter of the law. So that's not hard to apply that one in our lives. Sometimes it's not so easy to discover what the spirit of the law is. We believe through what God taught, um, through Jesus, through Peter, uh, and the dream that he had, that there's nothing intrinsically sinful about eating pork, which is you know, something that's expressly forbidden in the book of Leviticus. What's the spirit of the law there? And we see as, we'll see as we look through it, it's about... The nation of Israel being distinct from the nations around them, from of, of abstaining from things that might seem weird to us, but um, you know, a number of the things that they're told to stay away from was because culturally in those times, those practices were particularly associated with the worship of other gods. And so we read things like, you know, don't shave your sideburns, and that seems like a really random thing for God to have strong opinions about. But it's about not doing this thing because it's particularly associated with this pagan worship. And we know that God's not going to be mad at me if I shave my sideburns uh, or if I eat some bacon. But likewise, we are called to be distinct from the nations around us. That we're called to be in the world but not of the world. That they might know that we are Christians by our love that they might see the fruit of our lives and believe. So as we dive into Leviticus over the next few weeks, or, you know, if, if you're the sort of, sort of person who wants to dive into Leviticus for your personal Bible reading uh, in the morning or in the evening, keep these things in mind. Leviticus is about the fact that we are able to have a relationship with a holy God, despite the fact that we are sinful and have fallen short. That it's only through what he has done on our behalf that we are able to have that relationship with him. And in doing that, Leviticus points us to Jesus, who is the one who makes the reconciliation possible. That he takes our sin upon himself so that uh, we are given his righteousness. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see a sinner that needs condemnation and being cast away from God for eternity. But he sees the righteousness of Jesus in us. And he sees someone who is holy 
and who can be in his presence. And as we look through Leviticus and we see what Jesus has done for us, it teaches us how to live in relationship with God, how to honour him, how to worship him, how to, um, you know, what things he likes and what things he doesn't like. So long as we learn to see the spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, it's no secret that Leviticus is one of those books that we, as your new covenant people, can sometimes struggle to make sense of. In that the the culture and the things that we see described are so far removed from our world of today and from our experience of what it means to be your holy people. But we pray that you will help us not to be put off by the things that are hard to understand or the things that are so foreign to us. That as we dive into it, that we really will see more fully the richness of what Christ has done for us at the cross. That as we come into this time at Easter, that Leviticus will help us to understand more and more the great extent of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And Lord, we pray that you will guide us by your spirit because we need your help with a book like this to understand, to have the eyes to see the spirit of the law and to see how it all boils down to loving the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and strength and soul and loving our neighbours as ourselves. We pray that we will approach this book not as a law that we're obliged to do, but as a commentary on what it means to love you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I noted before, the holiness of God is a massive part of what Leviticus helps us to understand and not to take for granted. And so we're going to sing a hymn, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty.